stories are everywhere around the moves Ron DeSantis is making around universities in Florida, employers dropping degree requirements, and then, Jeff, seemingly out of nowhere, the success of High Point University. Yeah, Michael. And so today on Future You, we're going to be joined by three reporters on the front lines of these stories for one of our most popular features here on Future You, a reporter's roundtable. This episode of Future You is sponsored by Ascendium Education Group, a nonprofit organization committed to helping learners from low-income backgrounds reach their education and career goals. For more information, visit ascendiumphilanthropy.org. This episode is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Working to eliminate race, ethnicity, and income as predictors of student success through innovation, data and information, policy, and institutional transformation. Earn continuing education units this spring with Teaching Practice, an online faculty development program from CoreZero. Over a series of asynchronous courses, you'll uncover new ways to leverage tech in the classroom and build inclusive curriculum, all while supporting your own well-being. Plus, you'll get weekly office hour support from leading instructors. Enroll for free today at education.coursehero.com. Subscribe to Future You wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, share it with your friends so others can discover the conversations we're having about higher education. I'm Michael Horn. And I'm Jeff Salingo. Welcome to Future You. As you know, Michael, I love talking to reporters and think our audience also enjoys listening to them. So let's jump right in with this conversation. So today on our roundtable, we have with us uh, Emma Pettit, who is a senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education, Paul Fain, who is a contributing editor to WorkShift and writes the newsletter The Job, which are both part of the Open Campus Network and focuses on education and workforce training issues. And we have Pam Kelly, who is a journalist in North Carolina and recently co-wrote a story for The Assembly, which is a digital magazine focused on the state about High Point University, which is what we'll be also talking about today. Welcome to all of you. Hello. Thanks. Thanks. Great to be here. So Pam, I want to start with you because one of the dominant narratives about higher ed right now is one of decline. And as we record this, Inside Higher Ed just ran a headline about another college closing, asking if it is a harbinger of for 2023. And yet here, you co-wrote this profile of High Point University, which is not exactly a household name in higher ed, about a president there who turned the place from a struggling college into a booming college. And it remains, though, something that maybe some institutions may not want to emulate. So what was it about High Point that made it worthy of such a lengthy article, especially right now? Well, what initially caught our attention was that in June, the school announced uh, its choice for a dean of a new law school that's going to be opening, and it was a very controversial choice. Mark Martin, who was a former North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice, who, according to the New York Times, had served as one of President Trump's informal advisors in his efforts to overturn the election. Um so we started doing research. That was interesting. Um, and it became clear that, you know, the university's president, Nito Kubane, had pulled off just an incredible transformation. Um, the school went in 18 years from less than 1,700 traditional students to 6,000, from 91 acres to 520, 
Uh, it's getting ready to open schools of law, dentistry, and optometry, a new library. It spends lavishly. Um, for instance, it recently decorated the campus for Christmas with more than 200 giant nutcrackers. It flies an eagle in for convocations. So we realized, like, this is a good story. And there have been a lot of national stories about High Point University's amenities and a lot of glowing press releases that are reprinted locally. But nobody had really looked at, you know, a deep look that said, how did they do this? So how did they do this? So what was the what was the kind of the bottom line of, of the piece? Um, the bottom line was um, Nito Kubain, who did not have a higher ed background at all, who came, uh, he was a motivational speaker and businessman. He treated it as a business and um, really, you know, um, looked for looked for students who could pay full freight and branded it in ways that attracted uh, attracted certain students and families. It's a nonprofit, but it's making a huge profit. It's a fascinating story, and Paul, I, I want to turn to you as as we just heard, President Nito Cobain at High Point is really selling a dream that students and families seem to be buying, or, or at least there, and at least for now, if you will. But it's also true that higher ed as a whole is struggling in terms of public perception. We had this recent poll, it's one of many from Populous that found that Americans have shifted their priorities on K-12 education, what it's trying to prepare students for. And get this, getting ready, uh, getting kids ready for college is, has plummeted from the 10th highest priority to 47th, according to this poll. And of course, enrollment is down, you know, some 1.3 million during the pandemic. So despite the rosy picture that President Cobain might be painting at High Point, I want your take. Is higher ed suffering from a crisis of confidence right now? Absolutely. In the literal sense, for sure. I think uh, folks are less sure about the value of higher education. There's a lot of doubt about the job market for a lot of good reasons, as you all know. What job is going to be there on the other end is a big part of this. But I think the biggest, uh, one of the biggest factors, certainly one of the ones that I think doesn't get discussed enough, is how much attention we've had on student debt. Years and years, particularly among prominent Democrats, folks have been talking about college being out of reach. I've talked to undergrads at Cal State who think they're overcharged for 5200 a year. They're not. That's, that's a good value. But I think right now we're in this place where all institutions are suffering uh, confidence in our country, and a lot of people are doubting whether or not it's a good investment. That said, you know, residential, full freight paying students, as Pam said, wealthy students at four-year institutions, they're doing great. Wealthy people are doing great in this country. Wealthy institutions are going to continue to do that way. Jeff and I, when we worked at the Chronicle long ago, had a series of stories about the growing divide in higher education. It's grown a lot worse. It's a chasm now. Hmm. Paul, I'm glad that you remember that. Uh, maybe we should uh, bring that series uh, series back because it was about the growing divide only between not only between institutions but also between students. So we're going to put a, a link in the show notes uh, to that. So Emma, let's knit you into this conversation because public perception in higher ed, as Paul uh, was talking about, is not just a partisan issue. It's really a bipartisan issue. It's really plummeting among Democrats and Republicans. But in in Florida, in particular, Republicans who have long criticized 
higher ed as being too liberal have really found a friend in uh, in the reelected governor there, Governor Ron DeSantis. So what's happening in the state of Florida? Because it seems like almost every day there's a new story coming out there about what's happening in higher ed. So can you give us just a quick flyover about what's happening in higher ed and, and why Ron DeSantis has just seemed to be picking a fight with colleges and universities right now? So, yeah, a lot has happened uh, really in the last month. Um, in late December, DeSantis's office requested that all colleges and universities, public colleges and universities, detail what they spend on diversity, equity and inclusion and critical race theory programs, activities and required courses. And this is seen as uh, by many a hostile move from a governor who is certainly no friend to DEI or critical race theory. Um, this month, he also appointed six new members to the board of New College of Florida. Uh, the New College is it's a public liberal arts college in Sarasota. Um, it's small. It's known for not using a traditional grading system. And DeSantis appointed uh to the board, the activist Christopher Rufo, who has really led uh, the campaign against critical race theory and diver diversity initiatives in education. And a staffer for DeSantis said that he wants to make New College into a, quote, classical college. Uh, he likened it to be the, a Hillsdale of the South. Um, Hillsdale is a private and conservative college in uh, Michigan. And he said in a recent speech, quote, we must ensure that our institutions of higher learning are focused on academic excellence and the pursuit of truth, not the imposition of trendy ideology. And also this month, um, he requested that state universities report information regarding transgender students. Um, he wants institutions to report numbers and ages of their students who sought gender affirming health care, including uh, sex reassignment surgery and hormone prescriptions. So all of that combined uh, means it's been incredibly, incredibly busy for us and for Governor DeSantis. And so do you get a sense of, of is, is this, is he trying to just develop a, a talking point for, you know, running at a national level? Is there some sort of polling that he sees down in Florida that kind of picking a fight with uh, higher education is a, is a good idea? I mean, it, it seems to me that, you know, there's, there's always these kind of dust-ups with governors and, and, uh, and, and higher education in a lot of other states, but not to this level. Yeah, I think I, I definitely agree. Um, last year, I did a project where I looked at um, some public sentiment and conservative lawmaker sentiment around higher education in Florida during the Cold War uh, and after the Cold War era. And you see this kind of um, criticism of higher education as being beholden to liberal values of being not for politically conservative students or faculty, of being elitist and out of touch. That comes and goes over the history of American higher education, um, especially for the past 50 years. Um, before all of this happened, um, DeSantis championed the what was commonly known as the Stop Woke Act, which restricts how teachers and professors can teach concepts related to race in the classroom. Um, Florida Republicans passed measures that transform higher ed in all sorts of ways. They could require a review of tenured faculty every five years, which DeSantis framed as a check on intellectual orthodoxy. So it's more than a talking point. Um, it, it's a clear vested interest. And actually, a journalist, um, Jason Garcia, 
reported that last year DeSantis had actually drafted legislation that would have gone much further. It would have completely overhauled oversight of higher ed in Florida, centralizing power in boards that are run by the governor's appointees. And a lot of that that draft legislation didn't get passed in the package that Garcia reported it. it. It got broken out and certain pieces were left behind and certain pieces were put into other bills. But it's clearly a hobby horse and Florida's legislative session starts in March. So I agree that it does seem like an escalation of some of these themes and trends that have been happening, you know, for for decades in Mm -hmm. public higher ed. So these are three very different stories and perspectives, but there is it seems to be a thread running through all of them in my mind that higher ed as a sector is really struggling to change to a shifting mindset about what is college and what kind of education does our population need after high school? Because obviously in Florida, DeSantis has also been focused a lot on you know the ROI of the degree too and, and focusing on programs that really have currency in the job market. So Paul, I want to get your take on a story out of, of Pennsylvania where the new governor, Josh Shapiro, in his first executive order, eliminated the requirements for the bachelor's degree there for state jobs that cover something like 92% of state jobs now. Now, this follows, of course, a similar move for governors in Utah and Maryland, as well as some big employers like Delta dropped the degree requirement for pilots uh, last year. Now, I really hope someone, and uh, hint, hint, uh, I'm not your editor anymore, but I hope somebody follows up on these in six to 12 months to see how many people were actually hired without bachelor's degrees? Like, is this just a PR move? Certainly some PR. There's some messaging that I think is valuable in that they're trying to signal to look beyond the degree to open up the hiring funnel. Um, Whether that translates into large numbers of those 92% of jobs in Pennsylvania, I doubt it. The data showing that higher education is failing lower income and diverse students is very clear. For me, one of the biggest ones was when we got disaggregated data on student debt default. Fully half of black college students who borrow will default on their loans within 12 years. I mean, that's that's insane. And, you know, I think the Chetty data in particular really blew the doors off of this. You know, it's just not working for many low income people. And they know that. And I think, you know, the Varsity Blues scandal really captured people's attention that the deck is stacked. If, if you're a low-income person, college might not be your best bet. Mm-hmm. College is a big word there, though. Um, does that mean a one-year certificate from a community college? You know, maybe not. But I think, to your point, a lot of companies have been talking about d- dropping degree requirements and continuing to hire. Uh, Oracle was one I saw. Made no progress. Zero, even though saying that. And you hear this a lot. Like the, the C-suite, the, the CEO gets all excited, wants to diversify their workforce. And then the HR folks are like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to continue to look at four-year universities. But all that said, I would not underestimate this movement. It's captured a lot of attention, and it it is bipartisan. We're also in a very tight labor market right now. So if the labor market loosens up a little bit, do you think that these degree requirements might come back? Or is this kind of a, do you really think that this is some new world order? I think that the degree requirements won't come back. I also think that in a tight labor market, it's going to be harder to get hired in certain fields without one. It's already hard. Um, And you know the whole last hired, first fired. If you're coming in with an apprenticeship and not a college degree, you might be in more danger of getting laid off. A lot of people are worried about that. This week we saw, what, uh, 10,000 layoffs at Microsoft, 12,000 in Alphabet. So you've got a lot of very degreed, credentialed people looking for jobs in tech. 
That said, while big tech might not be hiring, you're seeing very strong demand for tech workers and financial services, retail, healthcare, even higher education. And, you know, one in three cybersecurity jobs are open right now. So there's a lot of desperate folks looking for new on-ramps, apprenticeships, short-term credentials, professional certificates from uh, some of these big temp companies themselves. And don't forget the DE&I piece. You know, cybersecurity is 80% white and 80% male. That's just not going to cut it for most companies anymore. Yeah, it makes sense, Paul. And, and it strikes me that one of the biggest issues isn't just the requirements, but the pipeline, where are they finding potential workers and so forth. So with that, let's just take a quick break on Future You, and we'll be right back. This episode is being brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Today's college students are more than just students. They are workers, parents, and caregivers, and neighbors. And colleges and universities need to change to meet their changing needs. Learn more about the foundation's efforts to transform institutions to be more student-centered at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. This episode of Future You is sponsored by Ascendium Education Group, a nonprofit organization committed to helping learners from low-income backgrounds reach their education and career goals. Ascendium believes that system-level change and a student-centric approach are important for our nation's efforts to boost post-secondary education and workforce training opportunities. That's why their philanthropy aims to remove systemic barriers faced by these learners, specifically first-generation students, incarcerated adults, veterans, students of color, adult learners, and rural community members. For more information, visit ascendiumphilanthropy.org. Pam, I, I want to turn back to the enrollment machine that is High Point because there were a few numbers in your story that I think regular listeners of Future You might be surprised to hear given their knowledge of the sector, frankly. So first is that the university posted a 27.7% margin in 2021. That's essentially profit, right? And it's way higher than, say, the 2% margin or even deficit that a lot of schools run across the country. So one way that High Point did this is they buck a lot of higher ed convention. That is, they don't discount tuition very much. So that means they're either attracting students who can pay mostly full freight, or they're really just making poor, poor students sort of figure out how to pay for college on their own and, and creating a gap in, in, in that uh, story for them. One result of that, and this is the other number, is that only 11.5% of High Point's first-year students were on Pell Grants in 2020. So how is High Point getting so many people to pay full price, especially against a landscape in which any other college they went to, that might not be the case? Yeah, <clears throat> they do get a lot of students uh, who can pay close to full freight. Um, one thing they do is they market like crazy. And um, I've seen on, you know, different kind of parent sites, you know, like College Confidential and Niche, um, that uh, some parents even complaining about how many things they get from High Point. Um, but they have found a couple really successful marketing uh, niches. And I think that's really key. One is that they call themselves the premier life skills university, and they tout their ability to give students practical skills that get them jobs. And they talk about 
internships and experiential learning. Um, I think a lot of schools do the same thing. Uh, they talk about teaching students to communicate. Well, I think, you know, most schools would say they do that, but, but high point and, and that this is Nito Kubane again, like have really found a way to market that. Um, the other thing they've done, and they have really leaned into this in the last few years is they market themselves as a God family country school. And that's a phrase that's on the cover of their view book. And the president says, you know, if you aren't uncomfortable with that, you probably wouldn't want to come here. Um, and it really appeals to a lot of parents who are turned off by what they see as more left-leaning universities. Yeah. It seems like uh, uh, I want to move from North Carolina back to Florida because it, it kind of goes along with what you were mentioning earlier, Emma, about, about New College. Um, and I wanted to ask you specifically about that because it's a place I visited when I was a reporter for the Chronicle of Higher Ed way back in, in 2001. And, and I dug up that story last week and, and, and there's a quote from a professor in there, um, uh, Glenn Cuomo, that uh, is just, it's so relevant, I think, to the time today because he said, I can only wonder how we will look to a conservative legislature, um, you know, back in, in 2001. And I don't think his definition of conservative probably in 20, 2001 is very different from what a conservative legislature might look like today. Um, and it seems to me what's surprising to me, and I've been talking to some of my friends down in Florida about this, is that the faculty, not only at New College, but at many of the other state universities seem to really want to do battle uh, with, uh, with DeSantis. And, and I just, I, I wonder why, because it seems like it's a losing one for, for many of them, um, because they don't have a lot of power in this. And what's interesting to me is that it's the faculty, but not the presidents that are seeming to go uh, up against DeSantis. The, the presidents, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, they seem to be fairly silent on this, at least publicly, while the faculty are just kind of going to battle with the with the governor. So, so what's really happening there? And, and do the faculty have any chance of changing public sentiment there? Because again, as we noted earlier, the governor was just elected by a pretty wide, reelected by a pretty wide margin. So not only are the presidents uh, silent, some are uh, speaking in support of what DeSantis is doing, or at least the recent request that his office made for all the spending data um, on diversity and critical race theory. In a pretty, I would say, extraordinary statement, um, the presidents of Florida's 28 state and community colleges, so not the 12 universities, um, put out a joint statement saying that they would identify and eliminate by February 1st any academic requirement or program that, quote, compels belief in critical race theory or related concepts such as intersectionality. In that declaration, they claim that, quote, some initiatives and instruction in higher education that fall under the label of diversity, equity, and inclusion have begun to betray the true purpose of DEI by seeking to, quote, push ideologies such as critical race theory and its related tenets. So that's presidents of 28 community and state colleges in Florida saying in a joint letter that they're going to comply and they agree in 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 at least the the previous paragraph that I just read. So yeah, I I if you're a faculty member at one of those institutions and you see your president signing on to such a statement and you have a different view, you know, it it certainly makes sense why either 
you're perhaps concerned to speak out or why you think to yourself, well, my administration is not going to push back on this in the way that I think they should. It is up to us, especially if you're you know, a tenured faculty member who is unionized within the Florida system, um, to put up a fight. Whether that fight is winnable, I think, is a completely different question. And the Florida legislature, I think, has a supermajority. The Republicans have a supermajority, perhaps, um, in in the houses now. And we're entering a legislative session after the last year's legislative session that did not look too great to liberal faculty who were who were watching what was happening. So. Yeah, if it's winnable, that I think is way more up to debate. And I, you know, might side with the governor and uh, the ruling class of lawmakers of a state over some angry faculty members if I was, you know, betting on the outcome. But I do think we're seeing a uh, period of resistance, certainly. So Pam, I I think this relates to this, which is there's a lot of perceptions in all of this and politics and so forth. Uh, and I'm just curious, what was the reaction to your piece? What have you heard? And maybe more broadly, what do people think will happen to High Point after President Cobain, you know, steps aside at some point? You know, is this a case where the man, maybe the myth, if you will, is bigger than the institution he leads, or will this have staying power beyond him? Well. You may not be surprised to hear this, but, you know, the reaction I heard, you know, kind of fell into two camps. Um, There were a lot of readers who were really turned off by the God family country focus um, and the fact that he's one of the nation's highest paid presidents and that he calls himself doctor, but he only has honorary degrees and that the school offers lavish amenities. But, you know, amid all this growth and spending, it's financial aid packages are less generous today than when he took over back in 2005. Um, So there were those people. Um, And then on the other hand, a lot of people looked at the university's financial success and they said, good for him. You know, smart businessman, he has made it work. Um, I think it depends whether you view universities as businesses or as institutions that have higher missions. Um, I do think that even people who don't care for what he has done and many of his decisions admit that school may well have closed uh, without him. Um, And I hadn't mentioned this, but, you know, the school has been a huge boon for High Point, the city, um, which was really suffering from uh, losing lots of furniture manufacturing jobs. So they are very, and, and it gives millions to the city. So they are very beholden to the university. Um, and your question about what's going to happen when he leaves is a great question. And I've heard that. Um, he's 74 and he has told me that he intends to be involved with uh, High Point University as long as God gives him breath. Uh But he and others have told me the school has a a strong team of administrators and it will be just fine when he goes. But, you know, there's no question that he is a charismatic leader and he has made himself the face of the university. There are two campus buildings, a city street and a city children's museum that now have been named for him. Uh, And when I talked to 
some parents, like at the opening convocation where he had the eagle fly, um, they just marveled about him. I mean, he, you know, he's one of a kind. And um, so it's an open question. It's interesting, Pam, your your story made the rounds of some people on my um, in my LinkedIn groups uh, who are trustees who tend to want to say, how can we do this, right? Because again, they're looking at the numbers. And to them, this is a very successful university, meeting enrollment. You're not spending a lot of money on financial aid. You're getting all this publicity. So it's interesting how I think how people look at different stories. And and Emma, that's it's it's kind of a similar question to you about reactions to your pieces. Um, you know, is is there is there especially given the chronicle readership, is there just a, a strong belief that, yes, go faculty, let's fight back <laughs> against this? Uh, or is there some is there some nuance to it where people are saying, well, maybe higher ed has moved too far in one direction, and here's somebody finally challenging it uh, to kind of move back? Yeah, I think uh, perhaps predictably in my inbox, it's a lot of faculty members because I cover the faculty who are saying, how dare DeSantis do this and go faculty and um, protest more? And why aren't university presidents knocking down the door of the governor's office every day and la da 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 da? And I understand that. I, I also do hear from people who I think are critical of um, universities focusing so much on diversity and equity and inclusion or who have who they think and maybe have more of what I would consider like a classical liberal approach of universities should focus on teaching and on preparing students for the job market. And they aren't so thrilled about the DEI initiatives that DeSantis is also not a fan of. But I don't necessarily think that they would put themselves in the same camp as the Republican governor of Florida. Um, but yeah, my the people I hear from are the people who are embedded uh, within academe and I think are concerned that other governors and other state legislatures and in other conservative states are going to take up the mantle and are going to see what's happening in Florida and think um, and, you know, those politicians are going to mount something similar there. But I do think that there is like broader criticism and debate over the programs and initiatives that are the ire of DeSantis. Uh, but I don't think those people would necessarily align themselves, you know, politically or otherwise with the governor himself. It's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about reactions and perception and how it drives next moves and so forth. And that gets into sort of where the puck is going, if you will. And, and Paul, I, I'm just curious, you have your pulse on this and where employers are interacting with education and the nature of new programs popping up and so forth. What's next for the college degree in terms of where employers stand? Where is this all going? Yeah, well, <clears throat> let me start with an anecdote from Florida, which is always turbocharged. Uh, you know, in the furor over Ben Sass's appointment at UF, I was reminded of a story. I went down when I was working with Jeff to cover another crisis in Florida, and the, a former president of UF told me getting just destroyed during the budget hearing in Tallahassee. Right after that hearing, several legislators who had yelled at him for the culture war fueled stuff slipped him a note of who they had to admit, uh, who UF should admit. Uh, you know, so <laughs> don't give up on the college degree. You know, UF is going to be just fine. Uh, it's going to still be one of the hardest public universities to get into in the country. 
I think you are going to see in small growth in alternatives. And I'll give you a specific example. Really devastating study recently about CUNY, City University of New York, like doubled their STEM degree production, particularly in uh, tech fields, uh, software development, et cetera. Terrible outcomes. More than half of those graduates aren't working in tech. The median wage is 45K. So it's not just a degree. Obviously, it's it's your your your, your advantages in in life. It's your it's your networking. It's your social capital. We all know this, but I think the veil is getting lifted here. Like you're not going to compete with an elite college grad if you go to CUNY for a tech job in New York City. That's just how it works. So the Marcy Lab School, I love this place. It's it's one of the only actual alternatives to a four year college that I'm aware of. This is a tiny. Startup school takes students who would have gone to CUNY uh, right out of high school. They've done a couple hundred so far. It's very expensive. It's subsidized by employers. They do a year of intensive training, including liberal arts sort of education, and the median wage is over 100K for their graduates. They've got jobs lined up. But we're talking a few hundred here against CUNY, which is massive. But I think in, in particularly, though, in the community college open access world that I cover, which is more than half of college grads, uh, undergraduates, 45% of undergrads go to community colleges, you're going to see more alternatives to that kind of transfer-oriented degree, which frankly isn't working. One in eight community college students will eventually graduate with a bachelor's degree. You'll see these subsidized on-ramp programs in high-growth fields where you know, ideally you can break into a job and then start continue to work on your degree. And I think Texas, another culture war fueled higher ed uh, market, you know, you're seeing a massive increase in funding for community colleges. A third of their budgets is being added, 650 million of that sort of targeted performance funded string attached for high high demand fields. Just kind of curious about what. Um what we're not, what we didn't ask about, anything else on your mind with these stories? When Emma was talking, I just thought it was so interesting what, what, well, and kind of horrifying what they were doing, what they're doing in Florida. But, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, feel like I kind of heard from the parent end of that when I was at High Point, and the fact that, you know, I talked to one parent who he, who had a fresh freshman daughter and was super pleased with the school, just loved it and told me he's already considering it for his nine-year-old son because he thinks that um, as a white man, he's going to have a difficult time. And I mean, I think that is, uh, you know, there is a segment of the population that really um, is so turned off by um, what they see as left-leaning universities. And I, I think, you know, Nito Kubain has found kind of a genius um, niche there. We, we often talk about niches in, in higher ed, and it seems like it, he's filling something that exists out there. Yeah, I mean, it, I, everything you're saying, as somebody who's covered for-profit higher education for a long time, you know, massive profit margins of 20% plus that you plow into marketing around a niche, you know, it works. It doesn't just work for for-profits. Uh, you know, you see Western Governors University and Southern New Hampshire University, over 200,000 students now. It's marketing that helps make that happen. I will say, though, that Western Governors profit margin is like 2%. And I, I do wonder, 
you know, for some of the deep pocketed four year universities, you've already seen uh, local governments coming after uh, endowments. You've seen Congress coming after endowments. I think it's going to get harder for the wealthy institutions uh, at times uh, in terms of, of at least scrutiny of their wealth. When, when Paul was talking about the, that interesting moment of like getting a president getting totally beaten down by the legislature and then getting slipped the notes about, um, you know, can you let my kid in or <laughs> someone else in? I think that's an important thing to note about these culture war issues too is, you know, just because, because a um, lawmakers will issue statements about woke ideology in higher education. Sometimes they make actual um, – sometimes they support funding for certain things at universities or sometimes they support raises for faculty members when the general budget comes around. Um, like Florida's Board of Governors approved like $20 million, I think it is, for a new – artificial intelligence initiative at the University of Florida. And they're very invested in having UF remain in the top five. You know, it's it's all all top five all the time. So it's this interesting dichotomy of, you know, them not being hostile to higher education in total, you know, or wanting to abandon the enterprise altogether. And sometimes it's it's quite interesting to to see there's this kind of sideshow which is becoming more of a main show in Florida of this culture war battle. But also there's there's the real, sometimes real initiatives or, um, you know, STEM type stuff that these lawmakers very much do want to support because they think it's going to bring jobs to, you know, to Florida, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind as just the culture war stuff is so interesting. I love reporting on it. I love um thinking about it and find it fascinating, but it, it, you know, takes up a lot of room and might not have as much effect long-term on people's like trust in the value of a college degree. I was just going to say, you, what you really need to worry is if those lawmakers give up their tickets to UF football games. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Totally. Well, speaking of UF, uh, Emma, and I, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on this, but you know, there's a new sheriff in town in a couple of weeks at UF, um, in the name of Ben Sass, and uh, just kind of wondering how is he going to play into all of this because he's not a, a Republican in kind of the Ron DeSantis mold. He's more of I, I'm wondering if he's going to become the next Mitch Daniels. In fact, Mitch Daniels 2.0 uh, since Mitch Daniels is retiring, and he's going to be kind of the the favorite conservative of of liberal liberal uh, higher ed. Uh, but how is that going to play in the state of Florida with somebody like DeSantis? Yeah, I think that that all remains to be seen. I've heard different opinions. Faculty members who are optimistic have heard his stated commitments to academic freedom and to tenure and to some of these issues that they really care about and are thinking, well, here's someone who can perhaps speak the language of the Republican lawmakers and of DeSantis a bit better, like maybe that's a good thing. Maybe he'll be able to provide some kind of protective coding or, you know, uh, be able to navigate those relationships because that's what they are. They're relationships, you know. Um, so I think I've heard optimism uh, from some faculty who I'm speaking with who have this wait and see and fingers crossed for the best approach. Um, I think that there are, you know, students and um, other faculty members who are not uh, that optimistic at all. 
um, I think to put it to put it gently, who think that this is just another step in the road of Florida's flagship being in the pocket of the conservative powers that be in the state. So I don't know. I think time will tell. It's going to be fascinating to watch this. Some of the sentiment you're expressing around, we don't like colleges, but we we do like colleges. And sort of that reminds me of sometimes anti-American sentiment around the world too. There's the great story from the 1990s where I can't remember which country President Clinton was visiting, but he was somewhere and there was protests and there was a sign that said, go home, Yankee, and t- and take me with you. <laughs> so it was right. sort of this ambiguity, I think, is uh, often in these, in, in these stories. Um, well, Emma, Paul, and, and Pam, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on Future Year. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So that does it for another episode of Future You, and we'll see you next time.